You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, family, good morning. Merry Christmas. Good. Wow. You're all festive. Good to see you. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. If it's your first time worshiping with us today, welcome. So glad to have you here. Uh, excited as we celebrate Christmas to conclude this Christmas series on the Psalms. So uh, I'm going to pray, and if you would join me, that'd be great. So, Father, as we celebrate the arrival of your Son today, tomorrow, this week, um, I pray that you would teach us what it means to receive him as our King, not simply as our helper or our friend or our counselor, but as our Lord. And would we see the great blessings of committing to you, Jesus, as our King. And Jesus, above all, would we see your unfailing commitment to us. Teach us now from your word for your sake. We ask it in your name. Amen. So, uh, Cashel and I began dating when I was 20. We were children. I was a child, at least. And, uh, and dating was amazing. And in fact, it remained amazing for about the first 18 months, but then we hit a speed bump. In fact, we hit a crisis, and uh, it was a manufactured crisis, and I manufactured it. Because at the 18-month mark, I had this realization. I thought, wow, everything is growing great, maybe a little too great. So here's the problem, and you know this if you've been in a dating relationship. When a relationship is good and it keeps going, after a while, you lose your escape clause. You have no good reason to stop dating. And, and, and so you've got no out. You just got to decide what to do. Uh, and, and now in some sense, dating is an audition, right? You're trying out for a role. And uh, side note, that's why at some point you need to stop dating uh, and either break up or get married because no one wants to be part of a never-ending audition. Um, that was free. Anyway, Cashel was nailing the audition, nailing it. But here's the problem. She was my first girlfriend, first girlfriend. So I had no basis of comparison. I didn't know how good I had it. And this thought entered my mind, you know, maybe to figure out how good this is, we should break up and date other people. And then we'll really know if we're supposed to be together, right? <laughs> this is a good idea. Now, I didn't say that to Cashel. Instead, I said, honey, I, I think I need some time and some space to think about the relationship. And she said, why? Why would you do that? And I said, honey, because things are going really well. And she said, that makes no sense at all. And I said, I know, just bear with me. And she did. And so I left, went on spring break, worst week of my life, didn't talk to her, and realized it wasn't her, it was me, it was my problem. Uh, came back from spring break, and we got engaged a few months after that, and I realized I was a moron. Now, here's the question. What is that thing in me? What was that thing? It's this sub-rational, irrational reluctance to just say, yes, I'm going to commit. Well, it's a thing I think almost every person in the Western world struggles with, which is, which is this. The highest good in my life is autonomy. I need options. 
I need choice, and to the degree I lose options, to the degree I lose choice, my life will be miserable. Miserable. That is the happiness narrative in the Western world. According to a recent survey, about 40% of Gen Z thinks that lifelong marriage is an unrealistic arrangement. 40%, it's just not realistic. And so many people now, they're entering dating like, I don't know what I want. I don't know if I want a committed relationship. I don't know if I want a situationship. I don't know what I want. I just, just want something. Now, I can have compassion on people because if you have only lousy models of relationships, you're going to have reluctance about commitment. But here's what I want to reflect on today. Contrary to what you might be thinking at this point in the sermon, this is not going to be a series about marriage or a sermon about marriage. It's a sermon about Jesus, but here's what we're going to see in today's passage, that marriage is a mirror of our relationship with Jesus, which means this. Our commitment issues on this level can tell us something about our commitment issues here. Our reluctance to commit in relationships tell us something about our reluctance to commit to Jesus. And even if you have made the decision to follow Jesus... There is always a temptation to be halfway in and halfway out. To say, I'm going to commit to him a little bit, but I I still need to figure out my options. But the sobering thing is this. You will never know the joy of committing to Jesus unless you actually commit to him. Because we don't grow merely by the knowledge we receive, but by the commitments we make. So, I want to talk about committing to the king. We're looking in the lead up to Christmas at the messianic Psalms. These are very interesting psalms, ancient Jewish songs that talk about the king of Israel. And as we've seen, they also talk about the coming king of Israel. They, they talk about the Messiah, this promised king of Israel. So we've been looking at this king in the lead up to Christmas and, and how these psalms are fulfilled in Jesus. And so thus far, we've seen how the king will conquer his enemies how this king will be crushed, but not for his own sins, but the sins of others. We've seen that this king is confident that even though he suffers, he will be vindicated. And we've seen that this king will reign with compassion. In fact, he is enthroned by his father to serve us. Now, that's who the king is. The next question is this, how do we respond? What do you do with this king What do the Psalms say? Well, to answer that question, we're going to look at what might be the most interesting psalm in the entire Psalter. You guys excited now? This might be the most peculiar, interesting psalm, uh, Psalm 45. And here's what we're going to see, who the king is and how do we respond. I think there is no better psalm to land the plane on for our series than this one. Let's start by covering some familiar territory and see how this psalm points to Jesus. Here's how it starts. To the choir master, according to lilies, it's the genre, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, almighty one, and your splendor and majesty, and your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. Now, this is an interesting psalm, like I said. Here's why. On the one hand, it's a royal psalm. It's clearly addressed to who? The king. And yet, it's also a love song. Did you see that in the superscription? This is a wedding song. So, some person, the sons of Korah, decided to write a song for the occasion of the king's wedding. That's the context. And that helps to explain the, the romantic language of this psalm. Did you see that at the beginning? The author begins by praising the king, and the king is so wonderful the psalmist can barely contain himself. The words just pour out of him. He doesn't have to labor to compose the words. There's no writer's block. He's just freestyling, as we would say. Why? Because he's overwhelmed at the beauty of the king. The poet says the king is the most handsome of men. Literally, he is beauty of beauties. That's the Hebrew. Super hot, as we would say today. Perhaps a bit less poetically. And as the king appears for his wedding, he's glorious. His royal robes are perfumed with the best spices. His palace is the most ornate. He's got people from all nations there in his courts, presumably because the nations honor him too. So, so there's an orchestra accompanying him. He's an impressive guy. Clearly, he's outwardly impressive, but notice that's not what the writer focuses on. In fact, when the writer describes this masculine beauty of the king, he doesn't say anything about his appearance, really. He talks about what? His character, his words, and his works. So keep that in mind. So, who is this written for? We aren't sure. Uh, presumably, this song would be sung by choirs anytime a king got married. But, but as you read this song, you just have this sense, you know, no king in Israel's history really lived up to this description. This is a very lofty description of the king. I mean, imagine singing this at King Ahab's wedding who led Israel into idolatry, or King Manasseh, who led Israel into idolatry after a revival, right? You are the most handsome of men, right? It just doesn't fit. Even David doesn't match this description, and what you see is this is clearly exaggerated language. This is hyperbole. This is a transcendent vision of kingship that would be flattery for most of these kings, so it transcends any particular king. Why? Because it paints a picture of what? The ideal king. It's the ideal king, the most excellent. He's most handsome, most gracious, most noble, most righteous, most selfless. So his character is the most excellent, and therefore his praise is endless. If you fast forward to the end of the psalm, what does the psalmist say? I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Nations will praise you forever and ever. That's the king we're talking about. Eternal praise from the entire world. So an excellent king, endless praise, and, and, and the most exalted titles we could imagine. And then we see this could really only be fulfilled by the Messiah. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. The writer says this, Your throne, 
O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, two things about this. First, this king is anointed. Remember what the word Messiah means in Hebrew? Anointed one. So we're talking about an anointed king. That's the hint that we're talking about, the promised king, the Messiah. But there's an even more startling title here. He's not just anointed. The psalmist calls him God. Did you catch that in verse 6? Your throne, O God. Now, here's the problem. At face value, it really looks like he's addressing the king. And interpreters have done all sorts of gymnastics to avoid that conclusion. That no, he's talking about Yahweh. He's not talking about the messianic king. He's going to be talking about the king's God. He can't be calling the king himself God. But here's the thing. The most natural way to read the text is that he is talking to who? The king. In fact, in verse 1, he says, I'm addressing my words to who? The king. And he's still talking to the king. And he says, King, O God, your throne is forever and ever. And yet, paradoxically, this king who is called God has a God. (laughs) Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. So what's going on here? Well, in one sense, the king is God's representative. And so there's Old Testament precedent for thinking like this, right? God tells Moses that you will be as God to Pharaoh, and that's true. Moses appears before Pharaoh, and he speaks God's words, and he's basically God's representative, and the way Pharaoh treats Moses is the way Pharaoh treats God, and that's all true, but this goes beyond that. This human representative represents God so fully that he can be called God. And here's where we see, uh, Derek Kidner says it like this, it's an instance where the language of the Old Testament bursts its banks. It's a time where the language is so huge and transcendent that we're just left with riddles and questions. How, who could fulfill this? And you already know the answer. Jesus, good job. Always go with the Sunday school answer. Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews resolves these riddles for us. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, it's an extended argument for the supremacy of Jesus. That Jesus is exalted over any human, over any angelic being. He is the most exalted. And remember what he says? He appeals to Psalm 45, and he says, But of the who? Son... Son of God, Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so now the writer of Hebrews is resolving the riddle for us and saying this can only be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is God's representative, but he's more than a human representative because he's not just the Son of God, he's God the Son. He is the eternal Son. As the writer of Hebrews says, he's the radiance of God's nature. The imprint of God's nature. He shares the divine identity. He is one with his Father in nature. And so it is entirely appropriate to call him God. And yet Jesus, who is God, is also a human king. He's a descendant of David, according to his humanity. So this king who is God also has the Father as his God. Verse 7 Only Jesus can fulfill this. And so do you see again how the Old Testament is giving hints and questions and puzzles and riddles and you can't finally get all of these things together until you get to Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, that's all familiar territory. That's what I've been trying to show you for the last four weeks. And so what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with commitment? Well, this gets to the meat of what I want to talk about today. How do you respond to the king 
That's the second half of this passage. Two things I want to talk about. First, the cost of commitment. What's it going to cost you to commit to this king? And then the crown of commitment. What is the reward for committing to this king? So let's look at the cost first. We already know the psalm points ahead to Jesus. We know who the king is. But remember, this isn't just a royal psalm. It's a wedding song. And you can't have a love song with just a king, right? Who else do you need? You need a queen. So who's the queen? Well, we meet her in verse 9. At your right hand, the place of honor, stands who? The queen in the gold of Ophir. We have no idea where that is, but that's where gold comes from in the Old Testament, okay? So here you have the queen. And just in our weddings, right, you have the groom come first, then the, the bride comes last. So it is here in this song. And so here we have a bride who is not just becoming the bride, the wife, she's becoming the queen. And so here's the question, right? We've already established that this language transcends any earthly king, right? This image is bigger than any earthly king. It points ahead to Jesus. So if the king is Jesus, who's the queen? It's us. Right, who's the bridegroom? Well, we know it's Jesus. Remember John the Baptist? When he announces Jesus and what he says in John, he says the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. See, I think John the Baptist had Psalm 45 in his head when he talked about Jesus. Because here was John's mission was to introduce the people of God to their king. And if you read the Old Testament, you know that means you're introducing the bride, that's the people, to the bridegroom. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called the bride. And so now Jesus comes on the scene, he's the bridegroom, and Jesus says, my whole job was to help officiate the wedding. I'm not the guy, I'm the one who points to the guy. The bridegroom is here, I have introduced him to the people, my joy is complete, because now the wedding can ensue. Does that make sense? This points ahead to us. Throughout God's scripture, we are called the bride and so just as the picture of the king can only be fulfilled in Jesus, the picture of the queen can only be fulfilled in us, which means this passage is extremely relevant for us today. And here's the question. What are we asked to do? What does it mean to commit to the king? Well, we, we hear this in verses 10 and 11. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord. Bow to him. As the bride approaches the groom, she's told to humble herself before the king. And here's the point. You have a new allegiance. You have a new allegiance and it supersedes every other allegiance in your life. Psalm 45.10 is the counterpart to Genesis 2.24. Remember Genesis 2.24? The first description of marriage says, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother, and cleave to his wife. And now here's the counterpart. Now the wife, leave your family and cleave to your husband. But notice here, it's not just leave your family or your father's house, it's forget your people. What is the point here? When you become a queen, you have a new allegiance. Your husband happens to be the king, which means you're part of a new kingdom as well, which means everything about your life 
Your old allegiances, familial allegiances, upbringing, culture, all of that is secondary now. And all of the thinking that shaped you, all of the ideas, all of the values have to all be reevaluated now because you have a new allegiance to the king. Everything now is under scrutiny because you have a new allegiance. Every other allegiance has to be broken as your primary allegiance. In fact, there is no other allegiance. There is only allegiance to the king and allegiance that makes sense in light of who the king is and what the king permits because you're part of a new kingdom. That is what is being said here. And now we get to the cost. What does it mean to commit to the king? It means you have a new priority to commit to him and his will, his values, his priorities, his desires supersede everything else in your life and everything else is secondary. In fact, the things that used to come first in your life now have to come second. Maybe they have to come 462nd in your life now because of who the king is. And now as Westerners, let's just be honest, you hear this image of bowing to a king and something in you goes like this, right? Because you're about to give some stuff up. And here are the big barriers. Here are three. First cost, and Jesus is clear about this, there's an independence cost. You are giving up independence to follow the king. You do not run your life. Now in one sense, marriage is an image of this. That marriage is the mirror of this. Because two become one, and for two to become one, you got to give up independence, right? But in marriage, the way this often works is compromise, right? You kind of meet in the middle in marriage. And we all know that, that marriage is all built on some good compromises, right? Like, like, like my wife and I are different, okay? And that's great. Because God intends husband, wife, difference. Male, female, different. And we're different in all sorts of ways. She's productive, I'm lazy, uh, she's compassionate, I'm conviction, right? Uh, she makes the bed one way, I make the bed the right way. Um, <laughs> I like good movies, she does not. Uh, so there's lots of differences, and we have to meet in the middle. Now here's the challenge of being married to Jesus, a healthy relationship you don't meet in the middle. In fact, any time he expresses his desire, his priority, what he wants, there's only one option because he's the king. You do what he says. And you see throughout the Gospels that Jesus is perfectly comfortable making demands of people that would be totally unreasonable for anyone else to make. Totally unreasonable. So in Matthew 8, a person comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. He's like, you ready to be homeless? That's where I'm going. Ready? The next person comes to him and says, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first let me bury my father. What does Jesus say? Let the dead bury their own dead. Who on earth could say that? No one. Because he's not just an earthly king. He's a heavenly king. And then when people want to leave Jesus in John 6, Jesus is like, you want to leave too? He's not needy. He's not like, oh, please follow me. No, because he didn't come to, to persuade people to himself. He just came to take over. And you're either for me or against me. Make the decision. 
And that is going to grate on you because it is not like Jesus is conforming to the image of you. You are conforming to the image of Jesus. That's the whole point of the relationship. So you look like him. The body is becoming like the head. The head is not going to look like the body. And so this is very challenging because there is only one path to life in a relationship with Jesus and it's just bowing to him. It's not meeting in the middle. So that's a barrier for us, right? So there's an independence cost. There's a social cost to following Jesus. Leave your family. Leave your culture. It means my priorities, being aligned with Jesus, it's going to create friction in my relationships. Because I'm going to make decisions that might not make sense to people in my immediate family. That's why Jesus says it's one of the most un-Christmas passages in the entire Bible, Matthew 10. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I've come to divide households against each other. You should know what you're signing up for. Because parents are going to get set against children. Husbands are going to get set against wives. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Because every allegiance is secondary. And so you're going to make decisions. You're going to make priorities. You're going to schedule your time in ways. You're going to use your money in ways. You're going to have values about money and sex and politics and all these other areas. And people are going to be like, what is wrong with you? This doesn't make any sense. I can't tell you how often I've seen it happen where there is a marriage One person comes to Jesus, it creates a crisis in the marriage. Because the person who doesn't come to Jesus says, I don't even know who you are anymore. You are are an alien to me now. You are not the person I married. And so often what happens is either that person comes to Jesus too or they divorce. Because it's such a radical disconnect at the level of allegiance. There's a social cost to following Jesus. And it used to be in America we were more positively framed toward Christianity that it was a social advantage to be a Christian, right? Just just go to church because it'll help you socially. It'll get you more well-connected. That's gone. Okay, that's gone. that's, That's not the arrow, especially here. That is gone. And so there is a time when you are gonna take a hit to reputation, a hit to relationships because of your allegiance to Jesus. There's a cost, okay? Final one is the opportunity cost. Remember the way Jesus says it, anyone who wants to be my disciple must take up their cross and follow me. Do you know what it means to take up your cross? It means this, I'm following Jesus and my future is over. I have no future apart from following Jesus. That's what it means to take up your cross. It means all my other options, all my other opportunities, all these other things I could be, it's done. I'm following Jesus wherever that leads into whatever hardship that leads into, whatever blessing that leads into, I've taken it up. It's done. It's done. And and let's be honest. Isn't there something so deep within us as Westerners that says that I have to have options? (laughs) I have to have opportunity. I have to have choice. That's why there's 23 jam flavors at the, at the you know, like, you know, it's just infinite kinds of, you know, I, I don't even know, disposable vacuums on Amazon. It's like, I just need 47 kinds of this thing, right? And Jesus is like, there's just one and your life's over. It's over. You can, it's as good as dead. You are dead to the world. You are dead to any other options. It is done. Take up your cross. That is what the queen is asked to do. And here's the thing. Jesus never lowers the bar. Ever. There is no point when people come to follow him 
Then he goes, I was a little too hard in the demand. Oh, you know, let me rephrase that. I don't think you underheard me. He's like, no, you heard me exactly. Do you know why? Because he's the king. And, and until you understand that a king has all authority and can ask you to do whatever the king wants, you don't understand Jesus. He is compassionate. He does persuade. He does draw, but then he demands. And he never compromises on the demand. Now, in light of that crisis, and it is a crisis, because a crisis is a decision point, what do you do? Well, look at the privileges of commitment. The, the cost only makes sense in light of the crown. Look at the crown. What is, isn't this interesting? You hear all those things about the demands of the king and that we're going to live till death do us part in this relationship, and, and you think, oh man, the queen's got to be, oh, this doesn't, no. What does it say about the queen? With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. The queen has joy as she goes towards her husband. And we saw this last week in Psalm 110. Remember what we learned about the followers of the king? Are they just cowering in dread about how terrible the commitment to the king is going to be? Remember what it says? We will offer ourselves freely. The dew of the morning, the strength of our youth will be yours. In other words, when you see who the king is and what you get by following the king, you gladly offer your life. You gladly say, you get it all because of who he is. Three things to consider here as you think about the cost of commitment. First, consider the character of this king. The reason we're terrified of losing our independence to someone is because we're afraid they will misuse our trust. If I give you all of my trust and put it all in you, you might be capricious, you might change, you might not be good on your word, but consider the character of this king. First, no one speaks like Jesus. Grace is poured upon your lips. Verse 3 says, remember what they said about Jesus? John 7, no one speaks like this man. Remember what Peter says when Jesus says, do you want to leave? He says, Lord, to whom else will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. See, see consider Jesus. Jesus, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in who? Jesus. Jesus is the king of heaven. Jesus created you. Jesus knows exactly what you need. Jesus knows exactly how to meet your desires and fulfill them. Jesus knows exactly what is good for you and what is not. It's not just that he can give you tips on how to optimize your life. He can actually tell you, here's how you were made. Here's how you find peace and rest and flourishing. Only Jesus can tell you who you are and how you can live. Because he's the perfect king and he's the perfect human. And here's the thing. You can listen to self-improvement podcasts till you die, okay? And you can find 20,000 ways to optimize your sleep and your health and everything else, but you won't actually learn how to live. You won't learn what to live for. You won't learn what to prioritize. You won't learn what makes life worth living. Only Jesus can tell you that because he's God in the flesh. 
So no one speaks like this king. Consider the works of the king. This king only loves what is right and only hates what is evil. I love it. He declares war, but when he declares war, what does he fight for? It says he fights for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Do you know what that means? The wars this king fights are only against what is evil, and he fights them perfectly. He fights them with meekness. Do you know what that means? Restraint, gentleness, lowliness, humility. Right, we agonize over war and whether a war is just or not. He only fights just wars. He only fights against pure evil to eradicate it for our good. He is the only one who can be trusted with that kind of imperial power. He does all things well. So consider the character of the king. Now, consider the privileges of royalty. Let's be honest. We get something out of this, okay? It's not like, follow me and you, you just lose your life. No, you find your life. What do you find? Well, consider the honor here. What does the text say? As you commit to this king, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king, her virgin companions following behind her. Do you know what that's a picture of? Honor. Honor for the commitment to the king. As the two become one, you know this about marriage. When you get married, your liabilities become their liabilities. Their assets become your assets. And you inherit whatever they have. And here we see the honor of the queen. What does she get? She gets the status of royalty. That's what the robes represent. That's what the gold represents. She has an honor and a dignity because who? She's married to the king. The king. Jesus gives us his own status. We are righteous in Jesus. We are beloved in Jesus. We are sons and daughters in Jesus. We are eternally glorious in Jesus. But, but here's the thing. The one who gave the queen the clothes is the king. The one who gives us the status is the king. Commenting on this, the church father Augustine said that thou wedest to your king who is your God, being endowed by him, adorned by him, redeemed by him, healed by him. Whatever you have wherewith to be pleasing to him, you have from him. He gives you this status and because you have honor, the richest of people serve you. God gives you a family that you couldn't get any other way. The, the, the family, the honor, the connections I've had through being a follower of Jesus, I wouldn't trade them for the world. The people who are committed to me. I don't care how much honor the world could give me. Being in God's family, that's the best family to be a part of. There's no greater honor. There's no greater provision. So consider the privileges of royalty. Finally, consider the legacy of the kingdom. Here, speaking to the king and the queen, in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. What is it talking about here? An eternal reign of the king. So from generation to generation, new princes, new members of the royal family will be raised up and this kingdom will go on forever. You know, here is the great privilege we get. If we're married to the queen, we get to see the offspring of the kingdom as well don't we? 
because we're called to make disciples of all the nations and the nations will come and we get to see over generations the impact of the kingdom as the king invites us into creating his offspring. You know, the older I get, you know, you think about optionality in life. I just need options, right? I just need options. I need to know what to do. Here's the thing. It's not that we need options. We just need to figure out what to prioritize in life. It's not that we need to do everything. It's just that we're scared that we're missing what the most important thing. The most important thing. And, and, and so as I've gotten older, here's what I've realized, okay? I, I used to think that a lot of meaning and joy would come from my own achievements, right? If you think I'm the best preacher in the world, then I'll be happy, right? Doesn't make you happy. Or if I can achieve this thing, then I'll be happy. It, it, it all kind of like you can only experience so much pleasure and go to so many exciting places and have so many earthly achievements before you're like, eh, that's not exactly what makes life meaningful. What makes life meaningful is a sense that your work endures. That you had an impact on other people that transcends you and will live on beyond you. And the older I get, the more I care about how I impact other people. Because that's the one thing that outlives me. And that's what the king is promising. If you commit to me, you will have a kingdom legacy where you make disciples who make disciples who make disciples to make disciples to the thousandth generation, the offspring of the kingdom. That's your legacy. That's what's worth committing to. So, so consider these things as you consider committing to Jesus because ultimately you're going to commit to something. You might commit to indecision. Guess what? It's still a commitment. You might, you might commit to following Jesus halfway in and halfway out all the time. Right? Just, I need optionality. I just, I need to go back to my idols one more time to make sure they're really awful and then I'm going to come back to Jesus. Right? It's a miserable way to live as, as a Christian. Right? I'm going to fully commit to you. Oh man, I just got to go on one more binge. Oh, that was bad. Okay, now I'm going to, it's a horrible way to live. Because you never see the blessings of fully living into a wholehearted commitment to Jesus where you take that step and find that he's even better than you could have imagined. Listen, here's the ultimate motivator for this. Before the king ever demanded you to leave and cleave, he went first. Jesus closed off his options for you. Do you realize that? Because before you ever made this decision, Jesus Christ left his heavenly family to cleave to the church, and the two became one. And you know that in any marriage, my liabilities become your liabilities. My assets become your assets. Guess what? In this relationship, we brought all the liabilities. And we put them all on Jesus, and Jesus took them on the cross. He took 100% of the liabilities. Guess what? We got 100% of the assets. Jesus took our sin, took our death, took our shame, and gave us his life and righteousness and honor forever. It's not a fair deal. It's not an even commitment. No, Jesus had every option open to him, and he chose one the worst suffering, and the worst death to wed you forever. And it is that love, if he loves you like that, 
He is the only one worth committing to without reservation, without precondition, without a prenuptial agreement. If this goes bad, no. Because she's not just your husband. He's your king and he's the king who rules over. And life is only found not in negotiating with him, not in arguing with him, of just saying, yes, I will follow you. Let's pray. So Lord, as we think about receiving you as our king, I pray each day we would receive you anew and say yes. Yes to what you have for us. Yes for the cross to bear. Yes for obedience when it's costly. Yes for faith, even when we don't have all the details worked out in advance. Yes to walking the Jesus way, even when it seems counterintuitive, Lord. Yes when there's a social cost. Yes Lord, when it could cost us everything, Lord, because we already know that your commitment to us cost you everything, that that you poured out your life to death, Jesus, because the king desired the queen. Lord, thank you that you desired us. What What an astonishing thing, and would it prompt us to desire you and to gladly submit to your demands, Jesus, for you are worthy. You are worthy to be our king. Pray it all in your name.